0: Well, we return this morning to our study of the book of Esther, and so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles there to Esther chapter 7. It's been a few weeks, as I said, since we've been here, uh, having uh, taken a break the last couple weeks with with Ed and with Austin, and so I want to take just a moment to bring us up to speed on where we are in the book. I know many of you have been following along these past um, weeks. Uh, Let's see, we've been, this is our sixth week, I believe, in the book of Esther, so I know many of you have been along for the ride, Uh, but I want to um, just bring us all up to speed. I needed to do this for my own. Heart before I sat down and, and started digging into Esther chapter 7 this week. So, as we think about the chapters, we've kind of taken them as chapter chunks. And even though the chapters and the verses in the scripture are not inspired, um, but uh, they're helpful for us in finding things. And uh, they are helpful in terms of division at times, as those who inserted the chapters and verses uh, sought to do so thematically. It doesn't always work, but sometimes it works nicely. And in the book of Esther, it's worked nicely. So each chapter has been a week, essentially, with the last time we were in Esther covering two chapters. But... As we think about those chapters, we actually could think about them in terms of, of characters. And so that's what I wanna do real briefly before I even read the as we get back up to speed on where we are in this book. So chapter one, we looked at this king, King Ahasuerus the most powerful man in the world at that time, the king of Persia. And we looked at his life and we were reminded that the world's greatness is ultimately an illusion and that though all, we see all the pomp and grandeur of this king, we know that the hidden king truly reigns. That was chapter one. And then in chapter two, we looked at Esther, Hadassah, this girl with two names, living in tension, living in two kingdoms. This Jewish girl swept up into this pageant of the king. And we recognize that life in two kingdoms is a struggle, but that God uses imperfect instruments for his glory. Chapter three, we focused in on this man named Haman, the villain in our story the one who had history with Mordecai, Esther's cousin. We are reminded that an enduring conflict remains and that there are things behind the tensions that we see in this story. There's light and darkness at one another. There's God's people and those who oppose God's people at one another. And yet we are reminded that we have an enduring salvation through it all. And then chapter four was Mordecai, the caring cousin who took Esther in and and is standing up literally for what is right. And it is in his life that we see the eyes of faith that see things as they really are. And then the last time we were in Esther, three weeks ago, we looked at chapters five and six where we put front and center Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the covenant, The one who is never mentioned, but who is behind the scenes and ever present in this book. And he's a God of sometimes subtle sovereignty, of satisfying sufficiency, and of sure salvation. And so we've looked at those five characters in those five chapters, actually six, because I cheated on the last one. And through it all, we have sought to see Jesus in all of these characters, the work of God's redemption in all of these scenes. Well today, all of these themes come together. All the years up into this point point to this very night. This is the pinnacle, this is the high point of our story. I'm excited that we're here because this is the night on which everything hinges. So this morning as we consider what the Lord might be teaching us, we're gonna see familiar themes. The truth that God uses us in our weakness. This, we're gonna see his sovereign hand in everything and, and the work of faith um, in those who follow him. But there's one thing, even though those are all good themes that we can look at again, there's, there's another theme, there's another truth that I believe is front and center in this account. And it's the title of today's sermon. Divine justice. Divine justice listen as I read. Esther chapter seven, verses one through the second verse of chapter eight. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had merely been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a dark turn of events. In the story of Esther, this is, a, uh, this is a tense scene from beginning to end, and so I want to meditate on just one thing this morning as we retell this story, as I retell this story and talk about it and try to unpack it a little bit. I want us uh, to focus on, on one primary thing, and it's this. The destiny of the wicked is destruction, The destiny of the wicked is destruction. Now that's, I admit, it's not a very sunny truth. But it is one that brings light to our lives, to our circumstances, to what we see around us. Have you ever been to a movie when... um, you hear the audience audibly react to the death or to the capture of an evil character I have, even, even cheering when they see finally, after all the tension, that, that justice has been done. Right, that's, that's part of who we are, and, and we especially as God's people, we, are, we have this built-in love of righteousness and longing for justice as his people. We're relieved when the bad guy gets his due, right? We're even happy about it. Because we're safe, because God's honor has been defended. You see, that's what God's people are encouraged and reminded of upon hearing and reading this account. That the destiny of the wicked is destruction. We'll return to the implications of that truth for for our own hearts later, but I wanna talk about what happened here and, and press into exactly what's going on. Three main characters compose this scene. It's day two of feast number two, hosted by Queen Esther for her king, her husband, and for his second in command, the villain of our story, Haman. And remember, Esther has set this all up, hinting at this forthcoming important request that she is going to make of the king. Remember, she has delayed asking him, which is uh, not only literarily built in anticipation into the story, but more importantly, it has prompted the king now more than once to publicly declare that he is ready to give Esther whatever she wants. Now, I would like us to just stop for a second and feel the emotions of what's going on here. Or at least try to feel some of the emotion of what's going on here because we can just read this passage or you can just hear me read it and just kind of check off what's exactly going on without really entering in to the emotions of the story. Let's begin with Haman. Right? Haman, he's not so filled with joy anymore. Remember, a chapter earlier, he was on his high horse. But now he's been, we might say, he's been knocked off his prideful pedestal by the king, in the sweet irony, exalting Mordecai, his hated enemy. And then his wife, in verse 13 of chapter 6, gives this ominous warning about his future, so as Haman comes to night number two of feast number two, he's probably pretty despondent, right, Haman is not sure what to think, maybe a little nervous about what could go wrong now, and then there's Esther, there's no doubt, I think, that Esther is nervous on this night, After all, the man that she is married to, King Ahasuerus, he's about as unstable as they get. And let me give you a story to illustrate this reality. The the Greek historian Herodotus records a request earlier earlier in Ahasuerus's history, a request made by one of his military officers. The man's name was Pythias, And Pythias had fought for the king in the war with the Greeks and he inquired of King Ahasuerus if possibly, in light of his own military service, in light of the fact that he had five sons, possibly could his oldest of those five sons be exempt from the required military service in the Persian army. He made this request of the king And the king proceeded to take that older son to cut him in half and to have the army march between him. That's the kind of man that Esther is married to. That's the kind of man that she is about to make a very significant request to. I mean, she survived entering his presence unannounced, but who knows how revealing her little secret is going to go over. Boy, there's lots of tension now. Haman is nervous. Esther is nervous. And then finally, there's the king. I gotta think that there's not much going on with the king. I think my man is just happy to be drinking again. He's just happy to be feasting again. The book began with feasts. Now here we are in the second of two feasts on the second day of the second feast. He's just glad he can be about drinking and that's the place where our account goes to right as we jump back into the plot, into the narrative, this post-dinner drink where, where things really unfold quickly and rapidly, the king repeats with the same words his desire to know what Esther wants as well as his intention to give it to her, whatever she wants, up to half his kingdom. And so Esther is finally ready. And I want you to notice how wise and how strategic and how careful Esther is in her language. First of all, she, she uses this proper Humble etiquette, right? Deferring to the king. She makes her requests personal. If I have found your favor, she says, my life is on the line. You see, she's banking on the fact that the Lord has given him, her, excuse me, given her favor in his eyes. And for five years, she has kept her identity a secret. Everyone knows who Mordecai is. Everyone knows who Mordecai's people are. That's how we're in this predicament. But no one is putting together that Mordecai and Esther are related and that they are part of one ethnic race. It's interesting to think about that when you think about Esther's time in the palace. She completely blended in. There was no Jewishness evident. No no Sabbaths, no feasts, no sacrifice, no dietary laws. And we can criticize her for that maybe. But now, with the eyes of faith for the sake of her people and with God-given courage, she identifies with them. We have been sold, she says. We have been sold. And we're destined to be killed, destroyed, annihilated. And here's the third way she's super careful. Basically, this this has happened despite you, O king. You see, notice that she doesn't blame any of this on King Ahasuerus, where, where he might get defensive, nor does she mention the name of Haman yet. By using the the language of the decree that Haman himself wrote, she sets the situation outside of the king. But there's a curious part of this account. The The latter half of verse four, look at it with me there. We asked the question, at least I did, and I think you do as well, why does she say that she wouldn't have said anything if the Jews were enslaved? Like she wouldn't even bother the king. Well, that seems kind of weird. Kind of callous, kind of cold. Well, maybe first, you know, maybe she's just puffing the king up. I mean, I think she is doing that. She's in deference, she's saying that, hey, king, your your peace matters. Like, I don't want to trouble you with stuff that's intense. So if it was just slavery, no big deal, but this is big deal. But there may be another reason why she says this. One commentator suggests, and I I think it's compelling, that this can be explained by the fact that Haman uses an ambiguous word when he talked to the king about this. And essentially, Haman tricked the king. That's what Esther's trying to say. If you are a, uh, maybe you're an English major. Maybe our English majors out there know what a, Homophone is that literary phrase. A homophone it describes two words that have the same pronunciation but have different meanings altogether. So in, in chapter 3, verse 9, if you have your Bibles, you can look at it there. When Haman asked the king if he could destroy a people, the word destroy sounds exactly like the Hebrew word for enslave. And this seems to explain why she brings up being enslaved. Because perhaps King Ahasuerus thought that that is what he had authorized. That he was merely enslaving a people, not destroying a people. Destroying a people, as we talked about weeks ago, that would would be contrary to his benefit. It's part of his tax base. And he seems surprised at this planned genocide. So could it be that Haman had tricked him? I'm not certain, but it seems to fit. And Ahasuerus' head is now spinning, trying to piece it all together. And Esther says, here's the punchline. It's this (laughs) dude's wicked Haman. He's not your friend, king. He is a foe. He's tricked you, and he's threatening my life. So the king needs some time to process this. His head is reeling. He goes outside to cool off to figure out how to handle this. I mean, One of the things that is the big challenge for him is how is he going to save face with Haman? Haman is his second in command. He's put a lot of trust in him. He gave him his signet ring. And and how is he going to reverse an irreversible edict? And so at this point in the story, things are seemingly outside of Esther's control. She has been manipulating the whole situation up until this point, but not anymore. Well, in God's sweet providence, Haman helps solve problem number one. You see, harem protocol in the Persian world was that you were not to get within seven steps of a woman who was the king's. But Haman's desperate. He realizes in the the position he's in, Esther is his only advocate, and so he pleads and he presses and he does it a little too much. We don't know what happened. Did he fall on her? Did he just get too close? Was he on his knees by her lap? We don't know. Likely he's not assaulting her, but the king's perception in his anger is different, and he is violating, going way overboard on Persian protocol. And now the king has reason to dispose of him quickly, even outside of the predicament of the edict. You see, Zeresh's prediction, Haman's wife, it's coming true. Haman is falling fast. He will not overcome Mordecai. He will not overcome Mordecai because of Mordecai's God. And so the lights go out. They cover his face Think about like when we, when we see in movies, you know, they put hoods over someone who is immediately condemned. The enemy of God and of his people has been dealt with definitively and decisively. Justice has been done. That's what's going on here. And God promised In Genesis chapter 12, that Abraham, that those who bless Abraham and his offspring will be blessed, and that those who curse will be cursed. The destiny of the wicked is destruction. And as a result, the fortunes of God's people are beginning to turn, and we're going to look at that next week. So, what is this episode and this truth? What does it mean for us? How should this apply to us and affect us? Well, let me suggest two things as we we come to a close. First of all, I think this truth, this reality, this episode in the life and the story of Esther, it's a warning for all who are listening this morning. Haman was driven by pride. Haman was driven to make a God of himself. and The Bible declares that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, I think God wants us to see that Haman's destruction is a shadow of what is to come for those who oppose God. You see, there's no neutral ground you are either for God or you are against him you either bow to the God who made you and sustains you by the word of his power or you will be forced to the ground in submission at the end of all things only to spend eternity apart from him that's a sobering reminder But this God has revealed himself through Jesus, the one whom he sent, the one whom Esther and her people looked to, the Messiah who would be pierced for their transgressions, our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And so the psalmist says, even before Jesus comes to earth in Psalm chapter two, verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The generation of Esther's day, their earthly salvation hinged on on these crucial three hours or so in this feast. But I declare to you that a better Esther was coming. And our entire world hinges on his life, on the 33 years that he spent on this earth and particularly three days, his atoning death and his resurrection from the dead, proving that all that he said and all that he was was true. Esther identified with the generation of her people in order to save their lives. Jesus identified with all of humanity to give us eternal life. That's the gospel this morning. Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so the first application this morning is to run to Jesus, lest God's justice find you. And that's an invitation that comes out of a warning and it leads us to another invitation specifically for his people, for those who have already run to Jesus, who are running to Jesus every day. You see, in the midst of our lives, in the midst of this bent and broken world, the wicked prosper at times, don't they? I mean, they wreak havoc. Right, I mean, up into this point, Mordecai was pulling his hair out. He was in sackcloth and ashes because he didn't see any way out of this. Those who were in power were about to destroy his people and him just to seem so far away from him. And and it's the same for us. Justice seems so far away from us at times. And we do our best as his people to champion mercy and to champion justice. But we know that things will never be as they ought in this life. And so the psalmist declares in Psalm 73, three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And yet it's passages like this, like Esther chapter seven, that lift our eyes reminding us that justice will be done. That Yahweh will be faithful to what is true and to what is right. He will repay because the destiny of the wicked is destruction. And that's why it's so important to be in the house of God every week, whether it's virtually or whether it's in person. Because the psalmist goes on in Psalm 73, 16, he says, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Brothers and sisters, there is comfort in this truth. There's even joy in this truth. Proverbs 21:5 When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. I want to read to you a quote from a commentator. I think it's really helpful. He says this about this passage. Esther invites us to rejoice in Haman's downfall. Haman is not us, but our enemy. He embodies in a most striking way that hatred that the world has always had and will always have for God's people, and his downfall is not our achievement, but God's, a gift to be marveled in and rejoiced in. As part of its total message, the Bible's laughter is an anticipation of the end, a reminder of the fact that in a world where God remains sovereign, it is not the proud and the cruel who will have the last laugh, but God and his people. So what do we do now? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. Psalm chapter 37. I'm going to read to you the first 12 verses, but I'm going to invite you to read it again this afternoon, to think about it, to meditate on it, maybe just this week, to spend some time in it. David says this in the first few verses, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil for the evildoer shall be cut off off, for those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. I'll stop right there, but read more. There's so much encouragement here in Psalm chapter 37 for for putting legs to what we've talked about this morning, to that reality that the wicked, the destiny of the wicked is destruction. Verse 8 in chapter 37 of the Psalter don't get angry. Don't take matters into your own hands. Verse one, verse seven, verse eight, fret not, but, but trust. Trust in his providence. Jesus gives you rest from your enemies. Verse seven, be still, wait. Verse four, delight in Yahweh, commit your way to him. You see, this addresses, this psalm addresses so much of, of what we experience, anger, Fear, distraction, busyness. This is us, but this is not what we need. So spend some time in Psalm 37. I realize I've never preached Psalm 37, so maybe we'll turn to it in the weeks to come and open it up together. Spend some time there and let God's word take root in your heart and life. Run into the arms of Jesus. Rejoice in the reality that God will make all things right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this triumphant moment in your redemptive story where you remind your people that evil will not prevail, that your faithfulness to your people, to the covenant, is strong and is true. Father, as we digest that truth, as we meditate on Psalm 37 this week, show us the way that we might indeed be led in the way everlasting, the way of life, the way of being still, of delighting, of not fretting, of not being angry. Oh, Father, take your word and plant it deep in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.